Do you know what happened six months ago? I understand. It's like, how do you narrow it down? So much is going on. I get it. Six months ago was the first Sunday in Advent. Fifty days ago was Easter. Ten days ago was the Ascension, the day that we celebrate the Ascension. Right before Jesus ascended, the disciples that he was with, he, he, he was specific with them. He told them what was most important in his mind. Last words before I depart. Go out, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And truly, I will be with you until the very end of the age. And holding on to that truth has been something significant for Christians throughout history. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Today, unlike you might have thought from last week, today is Pentecost. Somebody messed up the calendar last week when I told you. This is Pentecost. This is the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit to all who are interested. Advent is the start, the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus. And we celebrate that, and we, we, we celebrate Christmas. Then we get through His whole life. We get to Easter, where it seems like it all is over, or Good Friday, crucifixion, Jesus is dead. How could He possibly be the Messiah? The Messiah of God can't possibly be killed, can't possibly be stopped. And at that point, there are no longer any believers. Nobody believes in Jesus. Nobody believes anything that He had said about Himself on Saturday morning. Easter morning. He rises. Resurrected. And then all of a sudden, all the people who fleed, all the people who turned away, all those folks who said that it doesn't make any sense anymore, the whole thing has changed. And they see it from a different angle. I didn't imagine it like this. He promised that He would never leave us and He would never forsake us. Pentecost comes as the fulfillment of that promise. Always with us closer than what most of the people in New Testament times ever experienced, closer than what most of the people in the Old Testament ever experienced. Within, not just without. Pentecost is the celebration of God's promise being fulfilled. He said He would come, and He did. We call that Advent. That became Christmas. He gave His life opened the door for us to forgiveness and salvation, rose from the dead, guaranteeing us the promise that we too may rise again, that death is not the end, that we don't need to grieve as those who have no hope. It's fantastic. 
These things are connected, and sometimes it's difficult to connect those pieces. Those are the parameters around Jesus' story. Today is the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, in a completely unrelated note, you know what these are, right? You've seen them before. They're common for you now. Most of the world used to consider these to be a wildly exotic tropical fruit, an almost otherworldly experience difficult to attain. But time passes, as it always does, and they become somehow completely synonymous with slapstick humor and the good old slip and fall joke, right? Toss the banana out. Some more time passes, and they once again, they become known. They're associated with something again. And it's related, but it's a little bit different. Now they get attached to the idea that something is wild. It's outlandish. It's it's exotic, maybe. It's out there. It's unexpected. It's unbelievable. That is just bananas. Sometimes a Bible bully says something that is just bananas, but you're in it, and it inspires you to search the Scriptures for yourself. I'd better look into that. I'd better check that out. I'd better not just take their word for it. And so that can be a really good thing, even if it didn't start like a really good thing. So here's a little guide today for a smoother ride on the Bible bus, all right? One day, Jesus, he's having uh, an interaction, we'll call it, with the Sadducees. And Sadducees are part of the religious ruling class elite. They are aware of the Scriptures. They can quote the Scriptures. They can apply the Scriptures mostly to other people. Maybe you have met some modern-day Sadducees. Matthew 28, 29, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. That was Matthew 22, my bad. You have heard them, you can quote them, but you don't know them. You don't understand them. Such familiarity, but it is just not sinking in. It's not becoming transformative. You use Scripture to try and transform others around you, but you do not allow the Scripture to pierce your defenses, to transform your heart and your mind. They're just facts. The Apostle Paul, he was writing to his pastoral protege, Timothy, and he provided us with uh, an evergreen statement, and that's a statement that seems to apply to any time. It feels like Paul was writing it just for us. Seems so clear. But these circumstances were true then, and they continue to be true throughout the century. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Two, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Three, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not lovers of the good, for treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like our time? It's even easier if you say, does that sound like other people? It's the world that we live in. Apparently, apparently it's the same world that the Apostle Paul lived in. It's the same world that he was trying to teach. Timothy, you're going you're to be a pastor in this church, probably the church in Ephesus. You should know this, this is what it is. And so when we get in this time now, we get this time, people want to say, this is the time. Oh my goodness. The way that people are now. Whew, not like it used to be, Right? That's what it used to be. We changed how we do some of those things. Perhaps we changed the degree. We changed the focus. But those things are still common. This is the part that you really have to hear. Verse 5. He's not talking about the culture external to the church. He says... These people have a form of godliness but are denying its power. They know the verses. They can quote the verses. They can apply the verses frequently to other people. This is a comment on us. It's a comment on me. And this is the way so often we have to hear it. When we read Scripture, so often we put ourselves in the place that we would prefer to be. When you read the Old Testament, we as Christians always want to identify as Israel. We don't want to identify as Babylon or Assyria. We're the ones suffering. We're the ones struggling. You have to be able to hear what is true. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. He's describing people who are in or around Scripture. They know it. He goes on to say, have nothing to do with such people. Bible bullies. Okay? So when we look at Scripture, we need to remember some key things. These Scriptures are for you, but they weren't necessarily written specifically to you. Some things are obvious and some things are less so. So here's some study tips to battle those Bible bullies and their banananess. That's funnier when I said it in my head. Uh, so Scripture is dialogue. That's the first thing. When you open up Scripture, you need to understand. You, you read it as words that you saw, and the, and the place that you started was the place that mattered to you. That's what you had in your head. This is for me. This is for right now. But Scripture is dialogue. There is so much happening underneath the surface also that sometimes we need to take a little bit of time to think about what's going on. So to give you a little bit of a picture of why 
why we need to think about what's going on and to put pieces together, there's an ancient parable, non-biblical parable, but it's, uh, it's helpful nonetheless. So there's this uh, ancient village, and in this village, all the people are blind. Uh, one day, uh, there's, a, there's a group of six uh, people from the village, and they're walking down the road, and they come upon a man riding an elephant. And that's just great because elephants are my favorite animals. Uh, so the six men who had all heard about elephants but had never been close to one asked the rider, will you let us touch this great beast? Because they wanted to go back to their village later on to tell the other villagers, villagers what an elephant looks like. So the rider agrees, and he helps them, directs them to six different parts of the elephant. And all the blind men touch. Uh, they, 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 they feel the skin. They squish. They hold until they knew or they felt like they knew exactly what that animal looked like. So in great anticipation, they're kind of bubbly together. They return to the village because they're going to report their experience to these other villagers. And the other villagers, they gather around. They want to hear about the elephant. So the first man <coughs> who had felt the animal's side he said, Mm, an elephant is like a great, thick, unmovable wall. Nonsense, says the second man, who had felt the elephant's tusk. He's rather short, uh, round, smooth, but very sharp. I, you know what? I would compare an elephant not with a wall, but with a great spear. The third man, who had touched the ear, takes exception. He says, it's nothing at all like a wall or a spear. What are you talking about? He said, it's like a, like a, like a giant leaf made of thick wool carpet. It, it moves when you touch it. I disagree, said the fourth man who had handled the trunk. I can tell you that an elephant is like a giant snake. The fifth man, what are you guys talking about? Were you even at the same place? He had touched one of the elephant's legs, and he concluded that an elephant is round and thick like a tree. The sixth man, he had been allowed to ride on the elephant's back, and he protested, can none of you accurately describe an elephant? Clearly, he is like a gigantic moving mountain. And to this day, the men in that village continue to argue, and no one has any idea what an actual elephant looks like. They didn't pull the pieces together. So consider the four Gospels. They cover a lot of the same material, right? But from different perspectives, especially John. They have a different purpose in their writing. They have a different implied audience that you might not catch on to immediately. Matthew. Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, and he seeks to reveal the Jesus story to a distinctly Jewish audience. So Matthew is writing. His purpose is to convince devout and dedicated first-century Palestinian Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah of God. Mark. Well, Mark is written more like a sermon. It serves as a motiva motivational call to action or a call to conversion that appeals to the common Greeks. And Mark's favorite line seems to be, then suddenly or immediately, 
Uh, It's all motion. It's the action-adventure gospel. It moves fast. And unlike the other gospels, Mark, he just doesn't seem to be as concerned with getting out the details. He focuses on one person's choice to act. And he, he's moving. The whole thing is moving to the big question. Now that you know the story, what will you do? Luke. Luke is the most sophisticated account of the life of Jesus, and it's intended to appeal to educated Greeks. It is about verifiable names and facts and dates. It doesn't lean to the supernatural and the mythical sounding. It leans heavily towards the quantifiable, measurable. Give me a conclusive argument in support of the validity of the historical figure of Jesus Christ and John. Well, John's gospel is so different in so many ways. It's not presented to convert people from Christianity to Christianity from any other religion, even though it is usually the very first book that is recommended for a non-Christian or a new Christian to read. Read the Gospel of John. But John is written originally to devoted, committed Christians within the church that John founded and led. And as these uh, early followers struggled to understand the challenges of faith and fidelity to Jesus in a world that they saw as becoming increasingly hostile to their beliefs. John writes to encourage the believers in the validity of their decision to follow Jesus. We benefit from all of them together. In our current language, you might think, uh, might think of each of those Gospels as a different marketing campaign for Jesus targeting a different target audience that they wanted to reach and connect with. So the Bible has more than one thing to say about a subject. More than one thing can be true at the same time. Put the pieces together. That makes it obvious then that Scripture is complex. And that's not to suggest that you should stop reading it and and, and immediately run off to seminary and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on your degree, but it is important to remember that words and phrases and ideas, well, they can have multiple possible meanings that, that, that don't all sit on surface level, okay? We're not the only ones that can feel that this Bible study stuff can be tricky. Listen. Listen to the Apostle Peter here, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Verse 16, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So, yeah, Peter lets us know that he already knows that Paul can sometimes be a bit hard to understand. It can be tricky. So, when you read, you might find that salvation means physical salvation. It could also mean spiritual salvation. Or it could mean both. The Bible is not 
always clear. And this is really hard to get into your head because when a Bible-related debate is ongoing, you will undoubtedly hear people say, the Bible is clear on this. And it might very well be, right? It might very well be clear, but frequently this is a phrase that is used to manipulate and to quash discussion, power and control, right? There is no discussion. There is no disagreement because the Bible is clear, or at least my interpretation of the Bible is clear to me. But please don't question it because I'm a very important person, more important than you anyway. And and, and if you do keep going, I'm I'm likely going to begin to point a question at you as a person and not at your ideas. So be aware and beware. Tim Keller said, the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. It's all elephants today, folks. (laughs) Elephants are coming from every angle. It's both simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest, greatest minds to explore for the rest of their lives. So we need the text, the whole text. It's important to ask when you're reading, what is the main idea in this passage? So most Bible translators help you out here, and they indicate where they think a passage begins and ends, and they do it by using headings. They're added into the text. They're not scriptural. They've been added in by editors. Standalone verses can be misleading, so make sure that you don't sleep on the co-text, the text that's around it. So a sense of the surrounding passages, or even the whole book, helps put a passage in its place. None of the biblical authors wrote a verse and then stopped. They were all saying something larger, something bigger than just a verse. All of the chapters, all of the verses were added in for the purpose of study hundreds of years later. How many hundreds? Like 15 hundreds. The Geneva Bible in 1560 is where we see this arise. And there it's easier to understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 if you go on to read Romans 2 and 3. You need to read around the text to get what was happening before and what he's going towards. You need to have the flow of what's happening. Just a second. Remember I said I like to have notes? My notes are hidden to you. But this has decided not to work. Okay, so you you have to know the area around the text. You're going to read what was before, and you're going to look at what comes after. All of those things are important to understand where you are specifically. What's next? Intertext. Texting. Use the word text as many times as possible. Generally, 
if something's important in Scripture, it will appear in multiple places throughout the entire Bible. It comes up again, right? So the command, love your neighbor as yourself, is repeated. And it's quoted repeatedly. It comes up. It appears in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whereas Paul's statement, I do not permit a woman to teach, which gets a lot of publicity, there's a single highly contextual appearance, and it is neither quoted nor repeated. So, we use cross-reference tools for a larger biblical perspective. Scripture is hugely self-referential. That means that the different authors quote each other and reference different sections of the Bible, Scripture, repeatedly. And that's what many of the footnotes, when you're reading and you see those little letters in, in the text, that's what they're referencing within your Bibles. This is a quote from here. This is something that you would find in. Here, this was in Psalm 1. This one comes from Ezekiel 12. They reference different parts to say that, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing that, that phrase, but the whole section. When, when, when Jesus is on the cross, He references Psalm 22, and when, when, when He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a reference. And when he does that, it means to anyone who is listening who knows the culture, when you say that phrase, it's like a hyperlink. You're supposed to click on all of Psalm 22. That's what he's saying by referencing that line. That happens. And so the writers do this repeatedly. The, the, the Jewish people knew their Scriptures so incredibly well. They studied and studied and studied, and since most of them couldn't read, they had to have it memorized. And so most people, even the non-educated people, would have a very high degree of scriptural awareness. So when these references come up, they know what they're talking about because it's not the Bible, it's not Scripture, it's our lives. This is our history as a people. That's what they're referring. It's not, a, not referencing um, a sacred book like we would think about it. They're referencing their own history with God interacting with them. So they know this stuff really, really well. So when we read, we have to pay attention to the context of what's happening. So reading the Bible is a cross-cultural endeavor. So you need to strap on your travel shoes because you were taking a trip to another culture at another time, and the more you realize it, the better. Keep it in your head. Scripture was written in a different time and at different times, different places, under different circumstances. More than 40 authors, distinctly different personal experiences, different positions in life, and all of them are way different than any of our own experiences while at the same time also having similar things. But for you to research, to gain an awareness of the Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture or Hellenism, you go, oh, that said hell. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about that. Hellenism means the, the, the Greek influence in the culture. So everyone living there already knows it, right? They live in it. We don't. We live over here. And so when you read about what they were living in, it helps if you know what they were living in, 
right? Because the way that they, they say these things, they came into the temple gates, or they, they came in just inside the city gates. Well, that means to us, they walk through the door. But in that culture, it means you came to the place of meeting in a town. Business is held at the city gates. That's where you deal with things. That's where you have councils. That's where you have trade. It means something entirely different than to us to say, mm, they walked in, right? So having some of that really helps us understand what's going on. So try imagining the original audience. I know it's hard, but it's your imagination. How would the original audience, how would they have interpreted the text? What would they be thinking when they heard it? Don't think just about what it means to you right now after you just walked out of watching the next Avengers movie and driving home in your Bluetooth-enabled, GPS-guided, hybrid electric vehicle. You're not living in the same world. Read Scripture prayerfully, not just intellectually. Ask, trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal the Word that you need to receive in this moment. Ask for the Spirit to guide you. Ask Him to speak and then prepare yourself to listen. God, help me to see as you see so that I can do as you say. Help me to see what you mean from this passage. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when He, this is Jesus speaking, but when He, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you of what is to come. 14, He will glorify Me because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. This is part of the relationship of the Trinity. Jesus always points towards God the Father, gives Him glory. The Spirit points to Jesus to give Him glory. They work together. Partnership, different roles, but they work together and they each glorify the other member of the Trinity. So whenever possible, and this will be a change. Many of you probably have not been in this habit, but whenever possible, read Scripture in community with others, with others who bring open hearts and bring curious minds to the table. We are to be a people who are practicing living in a discerning community, not waiting for somebody to simply discern for us, and then we decide whether or not we like their discernment, which is the way that we kind of like to work. You do all the work, you come up with an answer, I won't do the work, and I'll decide whether or not I agree with your answer or not, and then I will live by what I want to do. We're supposed to discern together, to work together. What do these passages mean? And not what do they mean just up here, what do they mean as I live it out? We are to be uh, that communal discernment. It's part of our calling. Part of the gift that God gave us is each other so that we would do these things together. Not just get right answers, but discern together how we would live well and wisely together in this world together. You see what I'm saying with the together? I'm not mentioning the elephant. I'm talking about the together. The way that you know it's from God is if it gives life. Does it bring about 
the things that we have talked about in the appearance and the aroma of Jesus. Those things keep coming up. Then, you've had a moment. It was beautiful. Discernment came. You feel like God has met you. Woo! It's amazing. You have heard from Him. Now, be careful what you do with that insight, right? What do I sense Scripture is saying to me specifically? Me specifically? Me right now? These living, uh, breathing, Holy Spirit-inspired moments are to help me in my own moment, and they're not to be applied to everyone, even though others might also uh, benefit from the insight that you've gotten. Not all insights are universal, and, and not necessarily for all time. So as you read a passage, you need to be asking good questions of the text and the context, right? Is what I am reading descriptive or prescriptive? If it is descriptive, like the telling of a story, this is what happened. That's not the same thing as this is what should happen. All right, and this is really important. When people go out to find a verse, they want the verse that says what they want it to say. And so they say, the Bible, because you don't say the author, you don't say the book, you want extra clout when you say it. So you take the whole thing and you say, the Bible says, and then you quote this, this verse, and it might very well be from a story, and it might very well be describing things that go horribly wrong. Here's a great example. I saw a mug. You know how we like to make inspirational mugs, Jesus junk stuff? Sorry. Um, beautiful religious relics. Uh, we, we, and we, we, we put verses on them. There was a verse on there, just, just a, a little section. And it was describing um, what would happen if we just bowed down and worshipped at this moment. Oh, that sounds good. Do you know where the quote came from? The temptation in the desert. Do you know who the speaker of the quote was? Satan tempting Jesus. But don't worry about the context. It sounded nice. He would give us all these things. The, you, the, the, the whole world would be ours if we would just bow down and worship. Yeah, the context matters. It's not an inspiring quote when you're quoting Satan tempting Jesus. It really changes what's going on there. So descriptive text or prescriptive text it really matters. So if it's prescriptive, then, then there's a second question that you've got to ask. Is this text addressing a specific real problem to a specific real group or is this an overarching principle? Okay, Paul, if you read Paul, Paul's very pragmatic in his letters. Uh, he, he's addressing specific issues in specific churches. So keep this in mind. There was a reason that he wrote that letter, not just so that you could read it. You might very well be able to read it and gain a lot of useful insight, but the context helps to give you the groundwork of what's going on in there. So very important. As Yoda might say, from context does Scripture derive its meaning. Therefore, 
of utmost important utmost importance it is context what is happening what is going on when you read the book of job and you want to quote just a line out of job it's important to know who was saying the line sometimes it's job's friends who are there to discourage him and they give him bad advice it would not be wise for you to take the bad advice that Job's friends gave to him and offer it to someone who's in a Job-like position. All right? It matters what's happening in the text. So also, be aware that our bias is, uh, we are modern or maybe even postmodern Western thinkers. And most of the Bible is written with an Eastern approach, which is inherently different. You could think of the same kind of idea, the difference is between using your right brain or your left brain. It's a different way of thinking. If you are not intentional, you will add personal preferences to the text or things that you have heard throughout your life. I've always heard this, therefore I'm going to write it in. So here's part of Paul's charge and challenge to Timothy that I want to share with you as well. But you man of God. Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That's what you should be like. Not like that culture that was described before. That, that is what the Holy Spirit is awakening in you. Don't be a Bible bully. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And in that confession, there is power. There is power in that. Holy Spirit, power that we don't get to distribute or even necessarily fully comprehend how it works or is working. But more is happening than what you can just see with your eyes. We live in a physical realm, but we also live within a spiritual realm. And when the Israelites, they gathered to remember the Passover, they, they, would, they would all come in. They, they, they retold the story of God's deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. N not just to recall it and remember it so we don't forget, but to participate in that deliverance again and again. They believed that the Passover meal was how each generation reenacted the Exodus story and brought God's power from the Exodus into the present. Similarly, when Jesus told his followers to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of me, he was inviting us to more than a, a, a few moments of mental reflection on his death. He was inviting us to rediscover the power of his death the power of His resurrection, and to invite God to bring that same power, Holy Spirit power, into our world and into our lives again. Holy Spirit, enliven us and empower us once again to live in earnest pursuit of Jesus. Guide us into right relationship with You and with those who are around us. Empower us to live from You and for You. Make us overcomers. Use us as your witnesses.
Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. saying, take and eat. This is my body. 27, and then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm coming back for you. I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. I'm waiting for you. Stay faithful. Stay connected. Enjoy the presence of each other and together remember me. Remember what has happened. Remember what is happening right now. Participate. Receive the power of God. Receive the grace of God. Remember the covenant that He has made for you, the new covenant in His blood. He initiated for you that offers you forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, to be made clean. When we participate in communion, this is what we come back for. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. We choose to remember what God has done. We choose to say, this is what I would like in my life. I would like more of this in my life. Lord Jesus, more of you. That's what I want. Holy Spirit, more of you. You are welcome in here. Come and move. Convict towards righteousness. Bring about the appearance and the aroma of Jesus in me as I go forward. I'm committing to it again, and I commit as I take these reminders, these elements, these symbols of what has happened, that story that transforms us that we started counting down six months ago. Jesus came that we might have a Savior. The saving is ongoing. So if you choose, if this, if, if this is what you want, if you would like to connect in this way, then I would invite you to take communion with us. It's at the back. You can come down this row here, aisle, and up that aisle on the way back. Take the elements. I think there's benefit in sharing those things together, getting in the habit of doing spiritual things together. Share it with somebody else. If that's hard for you, I understand. It was hard for me too the first time. It gets easier as you get in a good habit of community participation. If it's still more significant for you to take that individually right now personally, then please do that. But share it. You could say something like, body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. 
Father, thank you for the way that you have moved. But more, God, I thank you for the way that you are moving. It's not done. You're not finished. You're not finished with us, and you're not finished with this world. You remain faithful. You remain present. You remain active. And we choose to remember a story that we are now participants in. We also choose to uphold the covenant that you gave us, that you started, that you offered to us. We're in. We trust you. We place our faith in you. Meet with us today. Again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.